Okay, we're continuing our study in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and we're at question 98 now. This is the last section. It's the section that is on prayer, on the Lord's Prayer. And the question today is simply, what is prayer? We'll be looking at that in just a minute, and I'll be reading from 1 Kings 8, 22 through 53 in a few minutes. So um, this is the third of the primary means of grace. Just to remind you, when we're talking about means of grace, what are we talking about? We're talking about those means that God uses to bring His saving benefits and blessings to us. Christ, by His death and resurrection, purchased and secured a whole host of benefits for us. The forgiveness of sins, complete justification, adoption, sanctification, the promise of perseverance, the hope of eternal life. These are all excellent benefits, and they're so very desirable. Everybody should want them. But how does the Lord bring them to us? How do we get those benefits from Him to us? How does He get them from Him to us? Well, He uses means. Inwardly, He works faith and repentance in us. By repenting, turning away from our own way to follow him, we come to him. And by faith, believing and trusting in him, laying hold of Christ for our salvation. That's how we're brought into the blessings of Christ's redemptive grace. Outwardly, he uses what we call the means of grace, especially the word which by which he speaks to us so that we hear what is required. We hear what he has done for us. We hear the good news. We hear the invitation of the gospel and believing it, then we are are saved. He also uses the sacraments. That's what we have most recently looked at, baptism and the Lord's Supper. We saw these are like a support to the word. They give us a kind of a tangible expression that, hey, he washes us as baptism shows us. Hey, he nourishes us. As the Lord's Supper shows us, we look to Christ and when we come to the Supper, Lord, nourish us. Come to Him initially at conversion. Lord, wash me from my sins. Cleanse me from all of my sins. And then the third means of grace, the one we're at now, is prayer. Prayer which simply He answers. We ask Him to save us and He does. We ask Him to bless us and He does. We, We look to Him in our prayers. In our study of the means of grace, we followed, of course, the order of the catechism, began with the word, which is the primary means of grace, and then went to the sacraments that he has given us now in the New Testament, and today, prayer. And so in this first message, we're just simply looking at what prayer is. It's pretty simple, really. It's kind of obvious what we're looking at today, but I think you'll be struck with the idea that, yeah, this is really obvious, but... How well do we actually implement what what we know about prayer? So let's confess what we believe about prayer in question 98 of the Shorter Catechism. Question 98, what is prayer? Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. I have chosen two scripture readings for this subject. They're different from each other in this. 
the one from Matthew 6, 1 through 8, which we already read, gives us instruction about prayer, instructions from our Lord Jesus Christ about prayer. And the one that I'm about to read now gives us a wonderful example of prayer. It's the account of the great prayer that King Solomon prayed when he dedicated the temple that he had just built. It's found in 1 Kings 8, 22 through 53. So it's a very long chapter. We're reading a lot and we're only reading part of the chapter. But uh, I will be referring as we go along today to both of these passages. The first one as instruction and the second one as example of a right kind of prayer. Instruction about prayer and then an example. So listen now as I read to you this one about the example of prayer, which is Solomon. 1 Kings 8, 22 is where I'll begin. This is the word of God. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand, as it is this day. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you have promised your servant David, my father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel. Only if your sons take heed to their way that they walk before me as you have walked before me. And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God. And listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes may be opened toward this temple night and day, toward the place of which you said, my name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. And may you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear in heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. When anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked, bringing his way on his head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you and when they turn back to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this temple, And hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land which you have given to your people as an inheritance." When there is famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, when their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, 
whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hand toward this, hands toward this temple, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and give to everyone according to all his ways whose heart you know. For you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm. And when he comes and prays toward this temple, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you and do as your people Israel and that, that, that as do your people Israel and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. When your people go out to battle against their enemy, wherever you send them and when they pray to the Lord toward the city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy, and they take them captive to the land of the enemy far or near. Yet when they come to themselves in the land where you have carried, where, where they were carried captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who took them captive, saying, We have sinned and done wrong, we have committed wickedness, And when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who led them away captive and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all and all their transgressions, which they have transgressed against you. And grant them compassion before those who took them captive, that they may have compassion on them. For they are your people and your inheritance, whom you brought out of Egypt, out of the iron furnace. That your eyes may be opened to the supplication of your servant and the supplication of your people Israel, to listen to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your inheritance, as you spoke by your servant Moses. When you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God, may God richly bless the reading of his holy word. What a wonderful thing that God should answer the prayer that Solomon prayed in behalf of the people after he had built the temple. And speaking about what prayer is, I want to begin with something that is so basic that it might seem ridiculous to even mention it. But if you will listen, you'll see that it is actually a matter about which millions err when it comes to their prayer. Prayer is addressed to God. You're supposed to talk to God when you pray. (laughs) Of course, right? You can see the emphasis, though. You can see it in the catechism. It is seen in the way the definition of prayer is given to us. That prayer is an offering up of our desires to God not somewhere else, to God. We address God. We bring our requests to God. You can see it in Jesus' instruction, what we read in Matthew 6, 1 through 8 earlier. He is talking about those who do their charitable deeds and their prayers mainly to be seen by others. So they're missing the mark. 
He tells us that we should pray to the Father, not to impress other people. That's not why we pray. He even advises us to pray in secret to our Father, knowing that He hears us. Of course, this does not mean that we should not pray in the church. I had someone say that one. Why do you pray at church? Jesus says pray in secret in the closet. But He's emphasizing that our prayers are not to be aimed at impressing others, but we are also commanded to pray corporate prayers. If you never pray in secret, though, as well, it shows that you're not really focused on God, but on other people around you when you're praying. You can see that prayer is addressed to God in Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings 8. You also see it here. So these three three ways, in the, in the, in the Catechism, in the uh, Matthew 6, and then in 1 Kings 8. You can see it in his example right from the start that he addresses the true and living God. He distinguishes him from all other gods at the outset of his prayer. Jesus did that too in a very simple way when he said, Our Father who art in heaven. But Solomon expands on this in verse 23 and 24. He says, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or earth below like you, who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants, who walk before you with, their, with all their hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. So Solomon is very specific about which God he is praying to, not just any God. He calls him Lord or Yahweh, his covenant name that means I am and speaks of God as the one who alone is self-existing. He is the root of all existence. He self-exists. He calls him Elohim or God, the name that speaks of him as almighty God, who is sovereign and who is the source of all things. And he calls him the God of Israel, which speaks of him as the one who revealed himself to one nation and raised up that nation in that time, time of Solomon and, uh, and, and when he, after he scattered the nations at Babel. He describes him also as not like any other God, as the one who entered into covenant with Israel and made promises to them and then faithfully fulfilled and is fulfilling those promises. He's the God that spoke and made promises to David, for example. What should you learn from all of this? First, to engage in real prayer, you have to talk to God. Sometimes when people promise to pray in our day, it ends there. They don't intend to actually talk to God about it. They just mean that they'll, they think they're thinking about you and they're wishing you well. And that's what they mean by, I'll pray for you. Such a person may be lifting up their desires, but it fails because they do not lift up their desires to God. It's funny, we have Thanksgiving, you know, and we don't know who we're thanking. We just say, oh, I'm thankful for this and this and this. That's not, that's not prayer. Uh, and, and, but what about us? You know, we, we say, oh, we, we don't do that. You know, we're Christian. But, but it's so easy for us to get into the habit of saying our prayers so that we hardly even are thinking about what we're saying when we pray, that we're actually speaking to God. And when we hardly think about it, it's probably true then that we're not really praying to him. We're just speaking into the air. Maybe we say our blessing for our food. We say a prayer before we go to bed or something like that. We're just mumbling words off. In public prayer, even in family prayer, we can actually be thinking about 
what others um, think of our prayers rather more than we're thinking about the God that we're speaking to. We're more focused on them than we are on God. We look at other people as our audience rather than God, who is the primary audience. Yeah, we're conscious of other people when we pray publicly, we want to pray so they can understand what we're talking about and so on. But our focus is to be toward the Lord, even in our private prayers. It's so easy, isn't it, to, to just shift into, like we're praying for our problems or other people's problems, and we just start thinking about the problems and the solutions maybe that we can work out, and we're not even praying. We're not even asking God for help. I mean, does that only happen to me? Does, does that happen to you? As shameful as it is, you forget that you're before the face of God and that you're praying to God Almighty. But there is more to this matter of praying to God than just that. For real prayer to happen, you have to address the true God as He is. Obviously, true prayer is not happening if you're addressing some false god, such as Allah or one of the Hindu gods. There, that is the way that you should not... That, that's the reason... That's the reason that you should not participate in the kind of services where people of different religions get together to pray. Everybody call on their God. You know, we'll all call on our gods together. No, that's a violation of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. There's only one true God, and to him alone we're to pray. It's a violation of that commandment. But it is also possible to use the proper names of God and still not be praying to the true God. We need to come to him the way Solomon did recognizing He is Lord, Yahweh, self-existing one who rules over all. We need to pray to Him as the Almighty, has all power in heaven and earth, who knows all things, who created all. We need to pray to Him as the one who is our master and whose supreme authority we acknowledge. We need to pray to Him as the judge of all the earth, who will judge every being that He has made. But even more than that, we need to pray to Him as the Father of Jesus That's where he really is distinguished from other gods, fundamentally and completely and entirely so. Solomon described him as the one who was the God of Israel, who had made a covenant with them full of promises that he faithfully would fulfill, had fulfilled, and was fulfilling. And since the time of Solomon, those promises have been marvelously fulfilled and advanced through the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The true God, the God to whom we alone are to pray, is the God who sent His Son to atone for our sins. There's no other God but that God. He is the holy God who in justice condemned the whole human race because of our sin, but in mercy sent His Son to redeem us. Anyone who does not pray to God the Father in Jesus' name is not praying to God at all. It's not just tacking on the words, in Jesus' name. It's coming to Him as the Father of Jesus Christ who redeems His people through Jesus Christ. The true God is only known through His Son who was crucified. You don't know the true God if you don't know Him that way. And who was raised for our justification and who is now reigning as our mediator until all things are put under his feet. Not some things, but all things. In a way, we could even say that Solomon prayed here 
in Jesus' name. How so? Jesus was not yet revealed as the Son made flesh who was crucified, but he was revealed through the shadows of the Old Testament, which were centered where? In the temple and its rituals. Did you notice how all the way through in his prayer, Solomon kept saying over and over that God would hear when they pray toward this temple or in this temple? Why did he keep saying that? Was he just superstitious? No. In verse 30, he says, And may you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear in heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. That, my friends, is the way that you prayed in Jesus' name in the time of Solomon. At the temple, you see, God revealed to his people that he was reconciled to them through the blood of the covenant. The sacrifices that the priests offered at the temple and the symbols of God's throne at the temple showed that he was a holy God who cannot look on sin and who is reconciled to them through sacrifice an offering. It was the way God's redemptive mercy was revealed in the shadows to them at that time. And now that Jesus has come, the redemption that was shadowed in the temple is fulfilled in Jesus' name and his work. This is the reason we no longer pray toward a temple okay, or an altar, but we pray in the name of of Jesus, who was crucified 2,000 years ago, who is now reigning at God's right hand. We pray, as Solomon did, toward this temple, toward this place where God is reconciled to man by the blood of the everlasting covenant. In Solomon's day, to pray without reference to the temple and what God revealed there was to pray to other than the true God. And now, to pray without reference to Jesus who died for sinners is to fail to pray to the true God. He is known only through His Son, and no one comes to the Father but through Him. A practical tip here. Be sure that you spend time in prayer, in your prayers, praising the true God. Remembering who He is and speaking that to Him in your prayers. Don't just barge in before his throne, showing up, throwing up your, your requests to him. Take some time to think about who he is, to talk about who he is, to praise him for his power and majesty, for his mercy and his forgiveness, for his mighty works, for all that he has done through Jesus Christ. Speak to God of these things. Give thanks for his promises, for his kindness and his love. Consider who he is. In this way, you will be ready to lift up your supplications to him when you start to ask him to provide for you or to forgive you or to bring a friend of yours to salvation or to give you wisdom about a decision or to advance his kingdom in the world, to make his name known, whatever it is. Start with who he is and his relationship to us, how he is revealed to us. By considering who he is as you pray, 
you are then able to truly bring your requests to him and not to another. To put it very plainly and simply, you're able to pray to God, to make your requests known to God. Now we need to move on to the next thing that prayer is. It's an offering up of our desires to God. And next I want you to see that prayer is an offering up of our desires to God. Okay, we're going to focus on the, uh, the desire part. There is to be a sincerity about our prayers. Beware of repeating things in a wooden way that you have heard others say or that you have said before many, many times that they are not really your desires anymore. You know what I'm talking about? You need to be sure that you actually desire the things that you're asking for. Don't just mumble off the list or something. You can say, you know, bless Tom and Bill and Helen and, you know, go go through this long list and not even care about Tom and Bill and Helen and whether they're blessed or not. It's just, oh, they're on the prayer list, you know. I I got through my prayers. (laughs) I got my list done. Jesus warns you that you're not heard for your much speaking. You just as soon put... Tom and Bill and Helen on a prayer wheel and let it, let it spin around by the water or something and say each time it goes around, then, then uh, the prayer is being made. Jesus warns you that you're not heard for your much speaking. We read that in Matthew 6, 7. He said, and when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. I'm sure you all know what it is to catch yourself saying words to God that you really aren't even desiring to be fulfilled. You need to put your heart in your prayers. Did you notice with Solomon's prayers that he spoke of prayer in a number of situations where people realized what they needed from God, where they realized that they had sinned against God and they needed to be forgiven, where they realized that they needed him to deliver them from their enemies that had come upon them many times because of their sin, or to restore their land, or to send food in a time of famine. It wasn't just ritual prayers that Solomon is talking about here. He didn't say, okay, here's a little list of nice, beautiful prayers that you can just like mumble these off before God when you come to pray. He said, when your people have a famine and they come to you and cry out to you, they're they're lifting up their desires for God. They want to see that famine lifted. They're not just mouthing stuff. That's what we're talking about here. But more needs to be said about these desires. You're not to offer up any old desire that you might have to God. God forbid. But only those desires that are, as the catechism says, agreeable to his will. It's very obvious that a bank robber should not pray for success in robbing the bank. Oh God, bless me as I go and rob the bank and deprive these people of what is rightly theirs in order to enrich myself. Make me successful and keep me from being ever caught. That's his desire, isn't it? But it's not a desire that is in accordance with God's revealed will. He may be perfectly sincere in that desire, and, uh, but, but such a desire should not be brought before our holy God. It... it, it, it obviously shouldn't. But how do you know what is agreeable to God's will when it's not so obvious? You know that something is God's will, first off, if he has commanded it. For example, he has commanded that you should love your wife or that you should respect your husband or that you should honor your parents. So pray about that. 
for yourself and others. You say, well, I don't desire to do it. Well, if you don't desire, pray that you would desire to, to desire that. He has commanded that all men everywhere repent and believe and, uh, on the Lord Jesus Christ. So pray for that. Pray that people would repent and believe. Pray that your lost relatives and, and your friends would believe and for the perseverance of those in the church who have believed, that they would continue in the faith. Now, you might be wondering, but how do I know if it is God's will for them to be saved? Because not everybody's going to be saved, are they? Well, there are people that I have prayed for, you might say, who have, who have died without coming to Christ. So it must not have been God's will to save them. So how will I know if I'm praying according to God's will or not? Yes, you can speak about God's will in that way. But that's not the way it's talking about here in the catechism. What you're talking about there is God's will as far as what he has planned to do overall, his decree. What we sometimes call God's secret will or his decorative will from the word decree, what he has decreed or planned. But when we speak about praying for things agreeable to his will, we're talking about things that he has called us as humans to do. It is his will for every single person to repent and believe. That's what he has revealed as his will, that everyone should do his revealed will. And it is our duty to pray earnestly that his revealed will would be done. Do you remember what Paul did in Romans 10 for the unbelieving Israelites who did not receive the Messiah? He said, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. He prayed for their salvation. He didn't know if they would be, which ones would be saved. Any of them would be, you know, he didn't know. He knew some of them would. But don't be some kind of twisted Calvinist who is so wound up so tight about theology and election and things that you say, well, I don't want to pray for the non-elect. You know, you, you don't know who they are. You're to pray according to what God's revealed will is. This is not a, that's not a Calvinist at all. Calvinist, Calvin is the one who reformed the church according to Scripture. And the Scripture calls us to pray that people would be saved, that unbelievers would be saved. Well, what about praying for healing? What if the Lord, what if it is God's will for someone to be sick so that they can learn of him? It's true. He sends affliction into our lives. He appoints it for us. But in our prayers, Jesus taught us to pray that we would not be led into temptation. And so you can pray that people won't be tested beyond what they're able with their affliction and their trials. Yes, even Jesus prayed that he might be spared from the cross if it were possible. However, it is also very good for us to remember what is most important when we pray. If someone is sick, yes, pray for their healing, but even more pray that they will grow nearer to the Lord through their sickness or through their healing, either one. Or if someone is persecuted, yes, pray for their deliverance, but pray even more as the early church did that they would honor God and be thankful through, for the opportunity to honor him through bearing reproach for his name. They would stay true to him through their persecution. In future weeks, we're going to be studying more closely about this when we look at the Lord's Prayer, and we will learn more about what is agreeable to God's will for us to pray about. 
But now I want to bring these two things together, okay? Our heartfelt desires must be in agreement with God's will. You see how those two things go together. To pray in the right way, you have to desire that which is God's will. But what if you don't? What if you don't desire what is God's will? What if, for example, you lost your keys and you just want to find them? I don't want to learn patience right now. I just want to find my keys because I've got somewhere to go. You could pray sincerely that you will find your keys, but you can't pray sincerely that that you will have patience if you don't find them. How do you get your desires to line up with God's will? The first thing you need to do is face the fact that you're struggling with a stubborn heart, that you need to repent. People today think they're stuck with their sinful desires, but you're not. You're not stuck with them in Christ. In the new covenant, he promises to give us a new heart, and he continues to nourish and and bring forth the purity of that new heart to make it more pure. So secondly, look to acknowledging that, then look to the Holy Spirit to give you the right kind of desires for your prayer. That's what the intercession of the Spirit is all about. Paul speaks about this intercession of the Spirit in Romans 8, 26. He says, frankly, we do not know how we should pray. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. The Spirit's intercession, you must understand, is different than Christ's intercession. You hear about Christ being interceding for us? The Spirit does not intercede the way Christ does by praying for you. That's what Jesus does. The Spirit intercedes by stirring up in you right desires for prayer. He moves your heart to delight in the revealed will of God and in doing God's will and in a desire to do God's will so that you can pray as you ought. He does not give you particular words to pray but yearnings and groanings that are deeper than words. In other words, deep desires for pleasing God, for knowing God, for seeing God glorified. As you grow in your faith, the Spirit gives you these desires. And when you come to pray, you look to the Spirit to stir up and to refresh and invigorate those desires. He does this in wonderful ways such as helping you to see the depths of the love of Christ. That changes your prayers. So that more and more you want to pour out your life for Him who poured out His life for you. That's how the Spirit works. He gives you yearnings to pour your life out for Christ. Something, of course, we don't, we don't relish the idea of if we have to suffer for His sake or things like that. But you, can, you become more desirous of that through the work of the Spirit. And remember, the Spirit uses the means of grace. He uses preaching. He uses reading Scripture. He uses prayers. He uses fellowship with other people. He uses fasting. He uses the sacraments. So give yourself diligently to these, and the Holy Spirit will give you a true spirit of grace and supplication so that you can lift up what? Holy desires before God that are pleasing to Him. You can have the right kind of desires. Sometimes we, uh, we have a desire for what is holy, but we know that in our flesh we struggle against that. We want something in our flesh that is, is displeasing to God.
Then there is a third thing you need to do to have a right desire for prayer. You need to recognize how much you need God's help. You don't pray if you think you can do everything on your own. Your prayers are just superficial then. You only pray when you realize that you are completely dependent on God for every single thing that you have, especially for life and godliness. For everything, though, from your daily bread to your sanctification, as Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. This is part of the intercession of the Holy Spirit, too. You see how much you need the Lord's help, and then you pray. We see that with Solomon, don't we? His prayer is such a wonderful example of prayer. He sees, like, these needs are going to come. And Lord, when this happens, when the people come, hear their prayer. You see how much others need God's help. And so you pray for them also. Okay, so what, we've, what have we seen so far? We have seen what prayer is. It is an offering up of our sincere godly desires to the true and living God, who is the Father of Jesus Christ. But there are two other things that will be part of your prayers when you're bringing your true desires to the true God. Two things that are mentioned in the catechism. First, when you bring your true desires to God, you will confess your sins. Surely you noticed that in Solomon's prayer. He kept on talking about the problems that would come on Israel because of their sin. And he asked God to forgive them when they prayed at the temple. He showed how they would come confessing their sins. There would be an association between their troubles and their sins. We're too quick to write off our trials and say, oh, well, you know, that's just a trial. And it's true that God does test us the way he tested Job when we haven't particularly sinned. But many times there's sin we need to repent of, especially when it's corporate problems like a pandemic or, or like an economic collapse in a society or enemies that come and invade. Those kind of things, it's almost always there's a great call for repentance in those situations. That's the kind of thing that Solomon is talking about here. Or when you know that you sin and trouble comes upon you. As we saw, the great focus of the temple was that God was reconciled to his people through the blood of the covenant. So people would come frankly admitting their sins, bringing their sacrifices, looking to the altar of God, because they knew that there was forgiveness with God that was promised that through the rituals of the temple. It was exhibited in the rituals of the temple. How much more is that revealed now that Jesus has been crucified and we come to God in his name? So we come confessing our sins. Think about how this works. If you come to God with true spirit-given desires to do his will, Much of the burden to do his will comes from the fact that you're what? Not doing his will. Your sins. So if you're really burdened to do God's will, you need to ask forgiveness for not doing his will. You know that you should love your wife. You know that you should be patient in your trials. You know that you should worship God more sincerely. And that's why you're asking him to help you to do his will. One about worshiping God, that's, that's been a big one to me lately to even when I was doing all that traveling, just crying out to God, Lord, help me, help me to see who you are and to delight in you, to see that you are good and that your mercy endures forever. You cannot do that before God rightly, though, without confessing your sins. You ask him to forgive you in as much as you have not been doing it. You read his word and you read his word and you see that You see that. You open your mouth and you see the sinful words that come out every day. You see the lusts that are teeming in your heart. 
If you're dealing with a true God who is the father of Jesus Christ, you'll come confessing your sins and asking forgiveness even as you ask for grace to do the will of God. You'll pray for both. Confession of sin is inseparable then from sincere prayer to God. So confession is the first thing you will do when you offer up godly desires to the true God. What is the second thing? I said there were two more. Uh, Sorry, I'm a little lost here. <laughs> What's that? Let let me have uh, let me have your outline. I'm I'm missing a, a page somehow in my notes. I can't remember where I was going to go. <laughs> Sorry about that. Okay, so. The second thing that you will do is that you will thank God for his mercies when you come before him. Even for the very fact of what we have been looking at, that he welcomes us as sinners to come to him when we pray. He is the holy God who is over all, and yet he allows us to draw near to him through Jesus Christ, who shed his blood for the remission of our sins. And we would be utterly cut off from God if it were not for that. And so you see this with Solomon, how he is grateful to the Lord that that sinners can come to him, that we can bow before him in our prayers. If you're praying real prayers, you will find lots of things to thank him for because he will be answering those prayers. In other words, you'll, you'll come to God and he will, he will respond to you if you're truly praying. You will see him active in your life and then you'll say, Lord, thank you for answering my prayer that I would draw closer to you or that I would have more patience in my trials or that I would be able to uh, minister to my friends or that one of my one of the people I've been praying for would, would be saved, would come to Jesus Christ. God has a holy standard, and we're not able to meet that standard in our own strength. But he gives us the grace to be able to come to him, and then we give thanks to him for what he has done. So if we're praying real prayers, that's going to be the, uh, the, the blessing and the benefit that we will receive from our God. So you see then that it all starts with coming to the true God as he is revealed in Christ. Coming to him with true desires to do his will. Much that is passed off as true prayer is not prayer. Why not pray then that you will pray more? more real prayer to God and not superficial and artificial prayers. That's a good place to start. And then you will be able to move on from there in your prayers to God. So you see that prayer, it it is a very, very simple thing in itself. But because of our sin, it gets all muddled up because we start to twist and distort the very simple things of 
simply coming to God and offering up sincere desires to him. Please stand and let's give thanks to his holy name. O Lord our God, we thank you and we praise you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you have given us holy desires as your people, that we might be able to come and bring those petitions to you. And that in your grace and kindness that you welcome us, Lord. You welcome your people when they come to you with desire to see your will done in the world. We pray, Father, that you would break our hearts, Lord, and and cause us to have holy desires before you. We pray that you would forgive us for, for the way that we pray to you, Lord, for the way that we come to you with a, with a heart that is, is not really desiring what we're even asking, or one that is callous about the sin that we have committed to you. Oh, Lord, humble us and break us. Mold us, Lord. Make us to be more and more like Jesus Christ. We are a people, Lord, who, are, who very much need your grace and help. We thank you for the beautiful picture that we saw of Solomon and how he offered up prayers to you and how you heard from heaven when he was praying at the temple, how he was praying, as it were, in Jesus' name in that Old Testament shadowy way. We thank you that now Jesus has been more fully revealed and that we can come before him as one who is crucified and has been raised again for our justification. And we can know that you accept us and that you hear us. Oh, Lord, please visit us with your mercy. Please give us your saving grace that we may be able to truly call upon your name. Father, this is a means of grace that you have given us and it is such an important one. And we pray that as we go on studying about it, that we would learn to to use it in a right way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. May he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifice. May he grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill all your purpose. We will rejoice in your salvation, and in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all of your petitions, and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.